0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: It's not about winning a fight in the room. I don't think you do the job as press secretary unless you've got like a little feisty in you. Otherwise, like, I don't know how you would do that job. It's very easy to like get into a back and forth with a person in the room. And to a person, most people said to me, it's about speaking to the people who are watching at home.
0: That's Jen Psaki. She served as the White House press secretary for President Biden for the first 16 months of the administration. As chief spokesperson for the president, Psaki was instrumental in messaging for the White House, often amid combative questioning from the press corps. Last year, she joined MSNBC as a political analyst and recently debuted the Sunday program Inside with Jen Psaki. Few people understand President Biden and his political orbit better than Jen Psaki. So I was lucky to speak with her just hours after the president announced his re-election campaign. We discussed the state of the 2024 race, including whether Ron DeSantis' popularity as a GOP candidate has already peaked. And we looked back on Saki's tenure in the White House. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child, so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Charlie, who asks, what's your reaction to the charges against Alec Baldwin being dropped? Well, that's a great question. I'm not shocked. For a lot of reasons, Joyce Vance and I discussed on The Cafe Insider many, many weeks ago. We thought the case was generally weak, suffered from some infirmities. There's some strangeness about some of the charges, and I'll mention those in a moment. I'm a little bit more surprised about the reason for the dismissal by prosecutors themselves of the charges. Now, you'll remember, the charges arose from a shooting that took place on the set of Alec Baldwin's film, Rust, in New Mexico. And he was filming and holding a weapon and shot and killed someone on the set. You'll recall also that as an initial matter, the DA in the case... Announced the charges were coming before they even were filed. Then she had to recuse herself. Then another set of prosecutors had to recuse themselves. So you've had this matter go through multiple prosecutors. It is already the case that part of the charges were dropped against Alec Baldwin. There was an enhancement of a particular charge that had to be dropped because the statute it was based on was passed after the conduct in question. In other words, after the shooting. And anybody knows in basic constitutional law, that's an ex post facto problem, meaning Something has to be criminal at the time you engage in the act. You can't have it become criminal retroactively. So this case has been plagued by difficulties and issues right from the get-go. What's a little bit odd to me and surprising to me is that the reason given by the new set of prosecutors for the dismissal of the charges against Alec Baldwin was that new evidence has come to light that the firearm in question was sufficiently flawed that it could actually have been fired without the pulling of the trigger, which is contrary to what the evidence we were told was before, in contrary to what we were told, an FBI report concluded. So this case was plagued from the beginning. I think a lot of experts had a consensus that it was a problematic case. And now it's dropped. Just to repeat, even before this supposed new evidence came to light, the reason people thought it was weak is that if Alec Baldwin had no basis to know that there was a bullet in the chamber, because a bullet is not supposed to be in the chamber, and further, nobody, including the DA, was going to be able to theorize or suggest to the jury who put that bullet in the chamber. It's a weak case because it shows a lack of intent on Alec Baldwin's part. And the theory was gonna be lack of training, lack of proper procedures on the set. And Alec Baldwin was himself, not just an actor in the production, but also a producer in connection with the movie. And I get all that. But even before this new evidence came to light, it was a bit of a tough theory. And now when you have evidence that the gun could have just fired on its own without the pulling of the trigger by Alec Baldwin, it sounds like the prosecutors had no choice but to drop it. This question comes in an email from Myra. Do you think that the potential overlap between the DOJ and Georgia cases has impacted the pace of the Georgia investigation? So I get some version of this question all the time, and I think I've addressed it in the past, but I think it's worth addressing again. As an initial matter, I really don't think it's the case that the Department of Justice is in any serious way coordinating with or interacting with substantially Fannie Willis, the DA in Fulton County, Georgia. They have separate mandates, they have separate rules, they have separate grand juries. Although there is some overlap with respect to the factual development in each of the matters, January 6th is a much more sprawling, broad, extensive investigation, and only a part of it would involve what's going on in Georgia. So I don't think one is telling the other what to do or to hold back or to share information. It's possible, but as a general matter, I think that's probably not happening. So the answer to your question, is does the overlap impact the pace of the Georgia investigation? I don't think that's true either. It seems that Fonnie Willis has been proceeding at her own pace. She impaneled many months ago that a special grand jury that would produce a report and a recommendation that indictments should be filed. The DA's office in Fulton County, in connection with a motion to unseal that report, argued that it should remain sealed for the protection of the rights of the defendants in question or the targets in question. And in any event, indictments were imminent And we had debated on the show and and elsewhere what imminent means. And I think some listeners asked me that question as well. And I thought that meant, you know, a matter of weeks. Well, we now know, based on a recent statement by the DA's office, that indictments will be handed down during the following window. And it's not immediate, doesn't seem imminent, although maybe to some people three months to five months is imminent. But she has said that the indictments will come down between July 11th September 1st presumably that tracks when a particular grand jury might be impaneled and she did it in part so that local law enforcement officers and public safety officials could prepare for the eventuality of such indictments being handed down but i think that timing is dictated by the pace of her own investigation and the procedures and policies with respect to her own grand juries not because of doj this question comes in the form of a tweet From Twitter user at Vinny Tesla, who says, this is the opposite of topical, but I'd love to hear you discuss how doing the show and talking to your guests has altered your own views during your time as a podcast. Well, that's a great and thoughtful question. And I've had to think about the answer to that question. Well, for one thing, I learned to talk less and listen more. Doing the podcast for five and a half years, coming on six years soon, has also reinforced for me the importance of preparation. It's also reinforced for me the importance of as you're talking less and listening more, to think about what is being said and to respond in the moment. So I I think I've become a better conversationalist and interviewer. As for your question about whether or not it's altered my views, I'm not sure, but I'll think about this. I'm not sure how much doing this podcast has altered my views so much as doing this podcast has expanded my horizons. It made me think about things and learn about things that I didn't have much knowledge of. So I'll tell you a secret. Don't tell my legal guests who I love and adore. But those are not my favorite guests on the show, people who I have an affinity for, but with whom I share a knowledge base. When I talk to lawyers about cases, I tend to know what they're talking about. I tend to learn some, but it's not the same as when I have guests on who are experts in fields at the top of their fields in areas that I'm unfamiliar with, or at least less familiar with. I feel like doing this podcast week after week after week has taught me about a lot of things that I have some now facility with that I probably wouldn't have, had I not been in the privileged position of doing Stay Tuned, and more recently, Stay Tuned and Brief, whether that's relating to the debt ceiling, or medical breakthroughs, or science, or AI, or neurotechnology, or foreign policy, or psychology, or how the brain functions, or interest rates, or the unrest in Mexico, the unrest in Israel, you name it. When I get to talk about those issues with people who are in the top of their field, It makes me think, it makes me learn, and I hope it does the same for you. I'll be right back with my conversation with Jen Psaki.
3: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash or wherever you listen.
0: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com/slash tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. The role of White House Press Secretary is among the most public-facing and highly scrutinized jobs in all of government. Jen Saki was President Biden's first press secretary and was influential in driving the administration's goals. Jen Psaki, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor.
0: Oh, well, that's that's very nice of you to say. Congratulations on your, on your new show. Thank you. We're going to get to that. We have a lot of things to talk about. My first question, which I'm sure you will have seen coming, you get a show, Tucker Carlson loses his show, <laughs> is there There's a connection?
1: No by the way, are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Now, I will say that I did do an interview with AOC on Sunday, where she called Tucker Carlson out for inciting violence, and he was fired the next day. There's no real connection that I'm tracking, but that <laughs> did happen.
0: All right, maybe you want to reconsider that answer and and take credit for something, because <laughs> that's the way of Washington, is it not?
1: I guess it is, but I've lived here a long time and I've survived so far.
0: <laughs> so we're going to get to your show a little bit later because there's some other news I want to talk about. And obviously your illustrious career at the podium at the White House. But I was starting to say before we started recording, come on, Jen, like all this stuff you do, podcasts, etc., interviewing people, it's all easy peasy, isn't it? Compared to the fire you had to take and the things you had to deal with at the White House podium. Am I right?
1: Well, sure. I mean, there were certain days in the White House when you when I was going out to uh, brief the press from the podium where I would turn to my team and kind of the room right before you open the door to go out to the briefing room and say, Whew, either like this is going to be a barn burner today or I'm glad I had my Wheaties or something like that because you knew before you went in there what it was going to be like most of the time and if it was going to be a bruiser of a day. <laughs> so I definitely had days like that.
0: Did you really eat Wheaties?
1: I mean, I don't mind Wheaties. Or is, Wheaties, that, a, is that a metaphor? Of a saying? It's kind of like a, I feel like it's a, yeah, it's a little bit of a metaphor. Like, you know, have your Wheaties, eat your spinach, uh, be ready with your strength for what you're about to face. <laughs> so that that's what I mean. But I also, use. are you a Ted Lasso fan? I feel like I, I should know this about you.
0: I am. Love I watched the first show. season twice. I'm caught up on season three.
1: Oh, it is so good for the soul. Um, do you remember in the first season when Rebecca, who's my favorite character, uh, she was about to go into a meeting with all of the male football club, as in soccer, but football owners. And she kind of like raises her arms above her head and makes herself big and tall. Yes, I used to do that before the briefing too, sometimes in honor (laughs) of her, but just to get yourself ready.
0: (laughs) You know, I got a question. We'll get to serious stuff in a moment. Yeah. So every week, you know, I take questions and I don't think I'm going to answer this one, but it just made me think of it. What you just said, someone asked the question, would you rather be 14 feet tall or nine inches tall? And why? No. And I don't know. Wouldn't everyone pick fourteen feet?
1: Hmm. I am five three. I might go nine inches. Really? You can just move. You can just like move around and be everywhere.
0: Yeah, but you could also get stepped on quite easily.
1: Well, you're probably fast if you're nine inches tall. Fourteen feet. Like I don't know. Ant-Man. You can't fit in rooms. You can't <laughs> go anywhere. Wait, how right. tall are you, Preet? I feel five, like five seeing- five eleven. Oh, I would have really pegged you for 6'3". I don't know why. Uh, well,
0: you're you're just the greatest guest ever.
1: You know, I don't know why, but I always, as a person who's been 5'3", well, for my whole life at my tallest, I do, I'm always fascinated by super tall people and kind of what they eat and like what they can see into Wheaties. in the refrigerator. I think it's a so lot of Wheaties. Maybe I didn't have enough Wheaties or milk. That's really the answer.
0: <laughs> so we're recording this. I want to timestamp it. Uh, late afternoon eastern time on tuesday april 25th and so what i must ask you about first is the biden presidential announcement and now i think it's the case that you said fairly recently that you thought it was smart that biden hadn't yet announced and then he announces yep. what do you yep. think about the wisdom of the timing
1: uh do do you think maybe they were like they heard me say that and they were like, <laughs> like well it's definitely s- time to announce screw Saki. Um, you know, I I think it's hard to know when the perfect time is to announce. There really isn't one. What I was speaking to is the fact that, you know, last summer, uh, there was a lot of he shouldn't run. Nobody wants him to run. All these other people should run. After the midterms, it kind of shifted a little bit. And it became clear that there really wasn't going to be, at least at this point, who knows? It is April 25th, so lots of things could happen. A real primary opponent. No offense to um, Kennedy, but I think so. I-, I thought it was smart for them to wait because the benefit of being an incumbent, you know, running for re-election as a president is being president, <laughs> right? right? Is you have the pl- you have the plane, you have the music, but you also can showcase to the public, look, you can see me in this job. I I have more work I want to get done. As he said today in his video, I want to finish the job. When I ran for president four years ago. I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. But I am, especially in comparison with potentially Trump and certainly some of the other ones, I'm I'm doing, I care about you, I'm competent, I'm trying to, trying to do work on behalf of the American people. Oh, and by the way, I'm like going to meeting with foreign leaders, so look, I'm being president. Um, so to them— my view has been that that has been beneficial to them to do that as long as possible. At a certain point, and maybe April 25th is the magical day or within the weeks or months of the magical time, you do have to launch a campaign so you can raise money, which it's very expensive to run for president, even for reelection, and hire a campaign team and get to the business of campaigning. Uh, but for a while, I think it was smart. For, smart was smart for them to wait.
0: But if you had your druthers and you were in charge, am I correct that you would have advised waiting a little longer?
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe a couple more weeks. But you want they, they would have wanted to get out, I would say, before the summer because the summer is kind of a lull a little bit. I mean, in you know, by August in
0: politics. But so I'm confused. So there are going to be a number of Republicans running, yep. some of whom are expected and have not yet announced. What's the logic? And maybe different people have different logic that they subscribe to. But if it's the right moment for Biden as the incumbent president, what's going on with DeSantis? Is he making a mistake by not entering yet?
1: I mean, what's going on with DeSantis is like the well, zillion-dollar question. I have a, a number lot, of questions. I have a whole a section lot to unpack there. I have a whole um, section on
0: DeSantis, but this is a question not specific to DeSantis. But yeah, if you're a Republican, why are you sitting on the sidelines at this fairly late date?
1: Probably because you don't want to be a target of Trump quite yet, although that hasn't exactly stopped him as it relates to DeSantis. Um, Right,
0: and Biden obviously doesn't have that consideration.
1: Correct. Um, You know, there are people who have kind of put their toes in the water, like Tim Scott, right, done an exploratory committee. That's one way to kind of feel it out and still raise interest and sort of see what the response is. Um, But, uh, you know, I think a lot of them seem to be feeling out whether they want to do this or not. Um, and you know, that rate, you know, for them, it's like, could I actually beat Trump in a primary? And if not, should I wait four years?
0: Um, since you mentioned DeSantis, actually, I mentioned DeSantis, let's pause on him for a moment. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's peaked? I think you've suggested as much.
1: Maybe now what's also true is that people, and I don't know that DeSantis will or won't people can get better in the course of running for president, even They're they're nothing similar, but even Barack Obama, who I worked for in both of his campaigns, was not the best version of himself as a candidate in the first couple of months. That's entirely possible. I think the challenge for DeSantis is that— people projected on him what they wanted him to be. Right. He was like this magical candidate made in a lab for a lot of Republicans who liked the conservative. I don't even know if they'd be considered conservative, but the positions of Trump, but didn't wanted less crazy. And DeSantis seemed positions of Trump less crazy. And that's why he peaked or so far he peaked in November after he Uh, had a kind of a resounding victory in November in his own election and um, seemed like one of the only real big winners in the Republican Party at a time where Trump did not seem like a winner. So the fact that he's gone down in the polls, he was beating Trump in many of the polls right after the November elections, and now Trump is beating him. It's not the right direction, but national polls are a very weird gauge and they're very, they move a lot endorsements. I know there's been a lot made of kind of Trump getting all these endorsements. Endorsements, in my view, don't really matter. They're sometimes a sign of momentum, but they certainly don't determine the outcome of a primary. But I think the question for DeSantis is, what is your strategy and how exactly are you going to take out Trump? Because he's not clearly going to do it. I don't know just that he by. has
0: a strategy. And Yes,
1: that's the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Further to your point, a minute ago, I saw recently someone pointing out to folks, and I I trust this to be true, I I, I haven't double checked it, that back in the 2008 race, Barack Obama did not lead Hillary Clinton in any poll nationally, not in any poll, until he won Iowa.
1: Correct. Yep, I lived it. So
0: winning winning changes the calculus, and it's all about that first state for the Republican primary, right?
1: Still is, and still could be. And that is the thing that is actually an open question here because there's no question there is fatigue uh, with Trump, even though he still has um, a great deal of support in the Republican base. Um, Iowa, it's kind of an open question. It's obviously not a factor for Democrats, even without a primary anymore, as it like it used to be. But it is a place where Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, I have no idea. I don't know you know, if they do well, if they court voters, if they're surprising, it could get them momentum, at least get them a bump, and they could be the more obvious alternative.
0: You know, this issue of peaking, you mentioned, it makes me think back to lots of different examples of politicians seeming to have peaked. I mean, it could have been said about Joe Biden not that yeah. long ago that he peaked in 1988.
1: Well, well. And, and he's the I, president I mean, of the you know,
0: United States, so people have people have multiple tr- lives in politics.
1: That's true. I mean, and 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 if you look back at twenty twenty, I mean, I was i w- I didn't work on any of the campaigns um, in twenty twenty. um, and I was in Iowa doing some commentating of sorts um for CNN and some for ABC over the Iowa caucus. And I remember, kind of chatting with a bunch of the campaigns, you could feel this movement for Pete Buttigieg at the time, right, which did end up playing out in terms of in terms of the outcome of the Iowa caucus. There was, I mean, Joe Biden finished fifth in Iowa, if I'm remembering correctly. There was like nobody in his Des Moines headquarters office. At that point, everybody was saying, oh, it's over. It's done. He's going to drop out. And then, of course, that's not how the primary turned out. So the thing about presidential primaries, and it's obviously a little bit different on the Republican side because there's more primaries than caucuses. Caucuses are a little different, but is that a lot of things can happen. And if people are looking for an alternative or for Biden, it was this electability argument that was very effective for him Same, it was effective for John Kerry back in 2004. Can DeSantis make an electability argument? He's not currently. Is he more elective electable than Trump? I'm not sure with some of the policies he's recently signed in, but he may be because he seems less crazy and unstable to people. So maybe. Hard to know. Could there be somebody else who makes that argument? Maybe.
0: I think you alluded to a poll at the beginning of our conversation. And the poll that I'm thinking of uh, reported that 70% of of Democrats, I think it was 70% of Democrats, don't want Joe Biden to run again. And I think it was either that poll or another poll that said, only 5% of Americans would like to see a rematch Trump-Biden. With respect yeah. to the first finding, is that a judgment on the part of Democrats that they don't like Biden or they're disappointed in Biden, or is it just concern about his age and ability to complete a second term or or both?
1: I mean, it's hard to, you know, some a lot of these different polls that test these this data don't always ask all of those follow-up questions, and I'm sure they will moving forward. In the NBC poll um, that just came out on Sunday, the reason why people who responded and said they didn't want Biden to run, the primary reason was because of his age. Now, he's 80. He is the oldest president in history. He would certainly still be the oldest president in history if he's reelected. Trump is also 76. So it's not like if Trump is the nominee, I'm not sure how they make an argument on the other side that age is the factor. I mean, it's like— my husband said this morning, which is funny, it's like Biden was a senior in college and, and Trump was like a freshman or something. I mean, it's not it's not like a massive age difference or something. But um, if it's somebody else, maybe that becomes a part of their argument. And certainly if you watched uh, Sarah, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders's response, which was a little strange, dark and like the twilight Zone-y, uh to Biden's uh, State of the Union, that, you know, she was leading with age as like with her chin, you know? So that could become a part of their argument if it's somebody who's younger. But, you know, people are, t- they want, they're tired, they want new people. That's not uncommon, right? Yeah. Change but which and, new person? and new. Yeah, that's always the question. And yeah, nobody it's, knows. It's
0: almost yeah. crazy. Although, you know, I have misgivings too and I'm worried about, I, I'm, a, I'm a big, I voted for Joe Biden. I'm a fan of his. I think he's been a very solid and steady president. I think he's been good for the country, and he was handed a lot of bad stuff, and he's made a lot of things better. But even I, you know, worry a little bit about his age and completing the next term. But then when I think to the next question, who's in a better position? Who's more likely to put together a coalition of people, not only within the Democratic yeah. Party, but also independents and some Republicans? I mean, I don't really see anybody. And I have, I'm have i a fan of some of the other people yeah. in the on the Democratic bench. Uh, you mentioned one of them, Pete Buttigieg. But in what universe is there some other Democrat who would satisfy the 70% who say they don't want Biden to run again? There's no such person, is there?
1: No. I mean, if there was, they'd probably be running. And it is exciting that there are a lot of interesting and compelling Democrats who are late 40s, fifty, even 30s, right? That's good for the future of the party.
0: Who's the best one?
1: Who's the best one? I don't know. I'm not going to pick among. I will say one of the cool things about this job, and this may be, you may feel this too, because I know you talk to all sorts of interesting people, but is that I've spent time with some different people that I didn't really know as well before, like Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Governor Newsom. I'm probably going to spend some time with Governor Wes Moore. And it's not that they're not obviously names on the national scene, but they are interesting and compelling people who have a could have a long future in politics who knows what that means and that's ultimately good for the party but yeah i mean to your point Preet, it's like um you know biden always says and he quotes his dad but i feel like a zillion people say this which is like don't compare me to the almighty compare me to the alternative which is essentially what a campaign is right you're not it's not a person against the ideal it's a person against the other option so Of course. You know, that's, that's, and if they can make that case, that's, that's how he wins.
0: I was reminded of something else historically. Somebody posted on social media today or yesterday, or maybe, you know, men, multiple people are posting this. There was a poll back in either 1983 or 1984 suggesting that a majority of Americans didn't want Reagan to run again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: Dude won 49 states.
1: I know. In the 84. <laughs> I don't think, I don't
0: think Biden is going to do quite, quite that well. I don't think any yes. race is going to unfold that way in America for a long time. But that's just evidence that some of this early talk is a bit silly.
1: Yes, it is. It is. Um, it is um, it's funny. The, the 84 race was, my, was like one of my first political memories because my mother voted for Mondale. And my dad, I remember my dad saying to her, you're like the only person who voted for Mondale in the country, and even at however old I was, like five or six, I was like, "Mom, that's kind of weird." Um, so my yes, parents voted. I,
0: my parents voted for Reagan in 1984.
1: There you go. Um, so I don't know that they voted um, for
0: Republicans since. Yeah, but boy, they voted for Reagan in '84.
1: Yeah. So there you go. Um, you're right. I mean, it's it's. Um, it's the the comparison between a person and the ideal or the magical unicorn candidate that doesn't exist that you want to see is not the reality of how campaigns and elections are fought or won.
0: So I have a, a question that will be a little bit of a transition from this talk about the 2024 race and your prior job as White House press secretary. So you're obviously gone, but if you were there now and your successor is dealing with this issue, So now your boss is not only the president of the United States commander in chief, he's also an announced candidate for the presidency. How would you be thinking about or how are they thinking about what they say from the podium when they're simultaneously supposed to be governing? Yes. But also obviously thinking very deeply and heavily about the upcoming political race.
1: Yeah. So I was uh, working on the campaign of Obama when he was running for re-election, so I wasn't inside the White House. But the White House during a re-election is thinking about a lot of things, but also primarily about the politics and the campaign. And there's a lot you can do in a White House that does not violate any Hatch Act laws or political rules, including kind of where you go, what you tout, how you sell and talk about if, the if you happen to be going
0: and touting infrastructure in early primary states, that's okay.
1: Right. Wink wink. Now what's tricky if I were in my old job and for my uh for Corrine who's my successor is the hatch act police are out and watching always um for what you say and do from the podium.
0: Is that still a thing given how Kellyanne Conway on down every single person in Trump's orbit in his one term, violated the Hatch Act, and there was no consequence for anyone. They
1: literally had a campaign rally on the South Lawn. (laughs) But at some point, Freed, I said something from the podium when I was there, and I got a very sternly worded letter um, from the Hatch Act police out there, um, from crew, about my violation of the Hatch Act. So I think Kareem keeps that in mind because, you know, as much as I kind of joke, you don't really want to be doing that yeah. from the podium. Um, And that's certainly not what the president wants you to do. But what you can do is you can find ways to explain, tout his accomplishments. Uh, it's not that the race is going to be won or lost on that, but it is kind of how you're judged. Right. And. You know, the IRA, which is like the worst named bill ever, although I understand why they did it that way. <laughs> um, I think of like Irish Republican Army,
0: like. Oh, I think tactics, I think of warm, like, cozy retirement plan.
1: I mean, whatever. OK, so it all brings up a different thing. It does not bring up addressing the climate crisis to either of us, but um, there's a lot in there. I mean, what we learned from the Affordable Care Act, which you will probably remember was very unpopular during the first couple of years, by the end of Obama's term, when this is when I was working for him, it was quite popular, in part because we broke out the components of it and how that impacted people's lives. So what you can do from the podium and from the White House that does not violate any Hatch Act laws is pull out those pieces and explain to the public— What exactly is in the IRA or the infrastructure bill or these these actually big sweeping accomplishments that they have done uh, under under, uh, the Biden presidency that people would care about if they knew what was in there? And it has to be more than this named bill or legislation. It has to be like the actual impacts.
0: So your time as White House press secretary was tumultuous time. That's probably true of everyone who's ever served in that job. Yeah. First question is, and I've asked this question of the other person that I'll be referring to in a moment. Yeah. What's the hardest job in the White House? I don't think it's president. I think it's either press secretary or chief of staff. Do you agree?
1: Oh God, the chief of staff. Um I don't know. I think being president's pretty hard. It's pretty like everything hard, but sits it's on cool. your lap.
0: You're the president.
1: I guess. Um I don't know. That mitigates um,
0: the difficulty a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I know too much about what it takes to run for office. I mean, the didn't have office. a plane. No, Klein did not have a plane. I will say, having worked for a number of chiefs of staff in my time, that job is so hard. It is everything is on your plate, including getting the president to make decisions about things he may or may not want to make decisions about, which is true for all of them. And every complaint from a staffer, from a member of Congress, from an interest group, from anyone who has any interest in what's happening in the White House goes to you. I mean, I Ron did not sleep in that job. I know because he would send like fully written speeches at three in the morning. Right. You could I don't never think he requires it.
0: There are some humans.
1: I maybe, but like everyone Ron needs a was sleep. Ron
0: create was Ron created by OpenAI? Yeah,
1: <laughs> maybe. Could have been. I will say, I would go into morning meetings with him and think, "Oh man, I am I am killing it today." I woke up at four in the morning. I read all the newspapers. I know what I want to say. I know what my questions are. And I'd get there. And it was like, I wanted to tell Ron something he didn't know. And never, I could. I, could, I don't know if I ever stumped him. Um. So that job is hard and horrible. And any person who's ever had it, who I know, Dennis McDonough, Rahm Emanuel, I mean, it, it makes them like almost breaks them as a human. It's so hard.
0: Presumably you consulted with varies of your predecessors Yeah. on the Democratic side. Did you talk to people like Dana Perino and others on the Republican side to get their advice and counsel on how to do that job?
1: Yes, I did. Um, and over the years, I've talked to Dana Perino. And I also talked to Dana Perino before I started my current job. Um, I've also read all of her books, um, too. And some of them talk about her time there. I did talk to um, all of the Democratic what press secretaries, I'm fairly certain, um, I didn't talk to the Trump era press secretaries, although when I was leaving, have you ever heard there, there's this tradition in the in the br- press secretary's office of the flak jacket, which this no. flak jacket had been there. It's actually a pretty cool tradition. It had been there for a long time. And every press secretary and it was kind of an old men's blazer. Every Was, press it, secretary, was it green?
0: Is it like the master's?
1: You know, okay, so I've never seen, I didn't see it because it wasn't there when I started oh. my job, but it had been there for decades and every press secretary left a note for their successor in it. Now, there's a dispute as to when it disappeared. I don't know. It was there when I left the Obama administration. So, and it was not there when I started.
0: If there were classified documents in the blazer, they probably went to Mar-a-Lago.
1: We it may be a Mar-a-Lago. If anyone finds an, a men's blazer with notes in the pocket. <laughs> but I did reach out to and engaged with, Kind of almost all of my predecessors um, around that. Because as I was leaving, I was like, I want to replace the flak jacket. And kind of reach out to people to put notes in because it is kind of this nice tradition. Now, yeah, I did replace so did it you? with a women's a women's bright yellow blazer. Um, but I did make one of the tall men on my team try it on to make sure in case it was a man who was a press secretary in the future would fit him, too. <laughs> okay. So but I did reach out to all of them and it was interesting. They mo- almost all of them replied. And and I didn't get all the notes by the time I left. But hopefully I think they've acquired some of them since then to put them in the pockets.
0: Was there a variation as a general matter, and the advice you got from the Republican press secretaries as compared to the Democratic press secretaries?
1: You know, surprisingly, not as much as you would think. Because one of the things that a number of people, and now this is a couple years ago, so I don't, and I sometimes like I wish I'd written this all down because they all had interesting things to say. But one of the things that was consistent that people told me was, it's not about winning a fight in the room. I don't think you do the job as press secretary unless you've got, like, a little feisty in you. <laughs> Otherwise, like, I don't know how you would do that job. But it's very easy to, like, get into a back and forth with a person in the room. And to a person, most people said to me, it's about speaking to the people who are watching at home. Now, for some people, that was, like, people literally watching live television or for, or clips of the television you know there's also now obviously a range of ways people consume information but that was one of the pieces of advice um a lot of people gave me which was so important to remember the other piece of advice people gave me was remember kind of who you're speaking for and you have to send a clear message early on that you have a direct you have his ear right Because that's what your value is, right? You don't care what I think. They cared what I was saying on behalf of President Biden. And so I made it a point early on to ask him some questions where I could say, and this became natural as I was in the job for a while, but where I could say, oh, I spoke with the president about this or I asked him about it this morning to kind of show that.
0: I want to ask you how you're prepared. Every day, it's fa- it's fascinating to me.
1: Preparation is all the things. Is this true? And is it? I feel like being a lawyer. Is this true? Like once you get to the courtroom, are you like, oh, we're ready?
0: Well, you have butterflies. It depends on what the situation is, and and yeah. certain kinds of things, you can proceed according to your script, and in other kinds of things, you need to be sort of generally prepared. And this is probably Agile. more yeah. your experience, and and go with the flow. You know, as they say, you know, in a box, you know, your plans go out. Something like your plans go out the window when you get punched in the face that first time, right? But it's endlessly fascinating to me how people do their jobs and how they prepare when they have public-facing jobs. So remind people, in normal times, how often you went to the podium in a week.
1: Five times a
0: week. So every—now, did you have to do that? Was that the tradition? Could you have done less?
1: Yeah, there was a tradition to it. And if—when I was um, President Obama's communications director for the last year and a half of his presidency, and if— if the Clinton team had come in, and this is not a partisan thing, it's mainly because they would have continued the traditions of respecting media and institutions, which is not exactly what Trump did, to say put it mildly. But um, I we would have probably – I would have said to them, I don't think you need to do the briefing every day or try to think of different ways to do it. I mean maybe some ways you do it t- – days you do it with just regional press. Some days you do it with – press that doesn't have a seat in the briefing room. Maybe some days you do it online because it really is a briefing for the 50 people who have the seats in the briefing room. And that's not controlled by anyone but the White House Correspondents Association. And they have a rhyme or reason to how they do it. But you don't reach a lot of regional reporters. You don't reach a lot of a range of digital outlets because they don't have seats in there.
0: Was that the, like that? Was the thought there? It's like second semester of senior year in high school. Your grades don't matter as much. You don't have to come out five times a week.
1: Well, no, I think it was more about being creative with your time and how you're how you're connecting with the public. Right. I mean, doing the briefing. So, I mean, when I started, uh, one of the things that I talked with President then President-elect Biden about when I um, talked with him about this job, the press secretary job was a kind of returning stability to the role right and not and taking the temperature down and the role that the press secretary has in reminding people that You know, U.S. government and the White House, even when you disagree and you have fisticuffs and back and forth with reporters, that's actually democracy working. So we actually made a decision to not only return it to five days a week, but also to do a briefing the very first day he was sworn in, which is not something that I'm aware of has ever happened before, just to kind of send the message that this was something we were going to do. So it's, you know, are you required to? No, but it does send an important message.
0: So other than read all the papers and follow the news on a, you know, any random Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah. What else did you do? What kind of meetings prepared you for your stint at the podium every day that you were in that job?
1: So I would start my day in the fives, as I like to say, and usually I would kind of try to send a note to the team when I was organized. Um, That wasn't overly formal, just like, here are the five or six things on my mind that we need to get answers to or need to really think about how we're going to address them. And for me, that was an organizational mechanism to, like, focus it. Because if you start the day and you're focused on 50 things, you're going to do 50 things mediocre, (laughs) right? Most days when you're doing the briefing, you need to get four or five things right.
0: When you thought about those four or five things in the morning, were they picked because those are the things you thought the press folks in the room were going to ask you about? Yeah. And or were there things that, you know, the administration, the president himself, wanted to get out there affirmatively? And were those two things or two categories of things sometimes different?
1: Yes, they were often different. And often that the way I started the day was more about the former, as in things the press were going to ask about, because in many ways, the press secretary, I don't know that this is the right analogy, but it's sort of like the fireman or the firewoman, right? You're like-
0: Firefighter. You let say firefighter here.
1: Firefighter, fi- firefighter. Um, in that you are dealing with incoming, right? You are, yes, on your best day, shaping the external message projected from the White House, but there's a reality of uh, what that job is, and often it is dealing with- the hardest, ch- most challenging, crankiest questions—less like, "Why is your climate plan so awesome?" Like that's not a question you get right um, now. You try to inject into it why the climate plan is awesome, but that's y- y- the right. way I thought about it was more about these are the five tricky wickets we have to we have to kind of think about, and just seeing in coverage and Twitter and all sorts of things where people are headed. This is where we need to focus our time. And then I would take that list with me, which kind of could evolve through the morning. And I would go to the morning meeting with Ron Klain, where he'd already been up for nine hours, you know, <laughs> um, and other senior advisors and raise things where I needed to raise them. Then we would have a meeting with the president, uh, news of the day, NOTD, as we called it, where I would raise things with him as well. Sometimes to during certain periods of time, I mean, there was a period of time, of course, early on where it was like all COVID. So yeah, I just would call Jeff Zients or one of the people from his tournament team and kind of go through stuff. There was a period of time during my later months where it was like all Russia, Ukraine. And so I used to go to a daily meeting that Jake Sullivan led as well. But the key was like keeping it focused enough that you could actually provide some form of new information, if humanly possible, on the things that were driving the day.
0: And so you went to the podium with a document, I presume?
1: Yeah, a binder.
0: And would you read from a document? And if so, was there someone that you had to clear that set of talking points with? Was it Ron? Or read the last set of eyes and you were trusted after some consultation and going to meetings, of course? You were trusted to put the language in the way you wanted to put it.
1: I would run, so there was, I. you would get a ton of stuff from different departments before the briefing. And the team, the press team, which isn't that big at the White House, it's only 10 people, but they were broken down by what we called beats, just like reporters do, right? One guy, Kevin... Munoz, who he knew so much about COVID by the end, we called him Dr. Munoz, um, you know, would do COVID, right? and Patel, who's now at um, the State Department, did immigration and climate, I think. I told him I gave him all of the easy jobs, which is obviously a joke. Um, you know, so it was, it was broken down by issues, and you would get a lot of paper from them. But there were certainly times and days and weeks where it was like I just had to kind of cull together what I was going to say. And yes, I would run them by, you know, if it was Russia Ukraine, Jake, John Finer, how does this sound? If it was um something that was about, um, and there were many days like this, a um negotiation on the hill, Ron, Steve Roschete, Louisa, others. There's a certain, and again, this this must be there must be an element of this in the courtroom. I don't know. Maybe I like should go to law school. It seems like it's like cool. I think you'd profession. be pretty good. But um there were, you, there's a certain agility or, or trust that's required when you're out there because you can't, you know, there you read some things from the paper. It's like if there's like statistics about the GDP, I'm not going to know those by memory necessarily. But a lot of it is kind of that back and forth banter and you need to be able to know what your parameters are. And so it's really about what your parameters are.
0: And obviously, as the press secretary, you're not the principal, you're not the elected official, but would you also – like politicians do, and I worked for a senator for four and a half years. Yeah. When you thought about what you were going to say, were you conscious of sometimes trying to say things that would be sound bites and that would be picked up in the media, or did you not do that?
1: Sure. I mean, I think— you have to think about that. Not in a way that is gross. And I don't mean gross. I mean like in a way that's so obvious, right? But you want to have good lines
0: because you want it to get out beyond the room.
1: Yes. You want it to get out beyond the room and you want to be able to explain it in a way that is digestible to people. And sometimes that requires analogies. It requires comparisons. It requires a, a hit on somebody who's the the, the, your foil. It's sometimes good to have a foil, right? Um, so those were all... You
0: showed that many, many times.
1: Yeah, it's fun to have a foil sometimes, a lot of time. Um, so there was... So, you know, the the people who are the best writers of communications political messaging are ones who can take super complicated things and make them digestible in a way that doesn't sound like a poll-tested talking point, but sounds like digestible English. And I fortunately worked with a couple people, a bunch of people who like we could batter thing, bat things around together and try to figure that out from time to time.
0: I'll be right back with Jen Psaki after this. Did you ever, particularly on days when you thought you were going to get a lot of incoming, do a moot? Did did, did people uh, sort of pretend to be particular reporters like the Fox guy?
1: Oh, before I started, I did about 10 of them before my first briefing. You know, you do kind of mini moots, right? Where you'd say, okay, you guys pretend to be the reporters. I just want to kind of like, because people— because the the press team can, can anticipate where conversations are going to go in a way that, like, you may not think of. So we would sometimes do mini moots to go through what the banter or what the direction, you know, it might go in yeah. was.
0: And who played the Fox guy?
1: Oh, God. Um, I mean, <laughs> Andrew Bates, who is, you probably know, who is one of the deputy press secretaries in the White House and is kind of – the guy who, if if there's an investigative story or something that is unpleasant, he's probably the one dealing with it. I think he probably played the Fox guy the most.
0: So I did a number of uh, press events when I was the U.S. attorney. Um, many, many, you know, dozens of press conferences. Mm-hmm. But on every occasion that I was going out, I think without exception, because I was choosing to speak, and it wasn't every day, obviously. Yeah. I was announcing some substantial law enforcement action. Yeah. That you know we would think would be received very well. You know we're holding someone accountable. We've um, you know caught people engaged in bribery. We've foiled a terrorist plot. Whatever the case may be, it was all good stuff. Generally. Yeah, those are all
1: good things.
0: <laughs> right. So you know I didn't have to get myself psyched up. There was adrenaline already coursing through everyone's veins. You go out there, and you're grateful that the team did a great job and you're increasing public safety. Now on some of the days that you were going to go out there. You knew there was going to be a torrent of criticism. Mm -hmm. In the moments before you went out there, did you have a ritual or a routine? Did you have to sort of get yourself amped up or were you already amped up and have to sort of calm down? Did you have more caffeine, less? I'm just very curious about how (laughs) you, you dealt with your temperament and your attitude as you walked out.
1: So John Kirby, who you probably know, but and I used to talk about how regardless of what was happening, even on tough days, the briefing was always the best part of the day. Because by that point, you kind of had what you had to say. Um, And you kind of it was a little bit of a test of sorts. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there were days where either there wasn't new information we could share because the negotiations over a bill or an issue were sensitive I couldn't share information because it was a national security issue and stuff was classified or so sensitive it would put something at risk. Or just we were under fire over something, justifiably many times, sometimes not. And you knew that you'd have to kind of go out there and answer sometimes questions 10, 15 times. And so... You know, most days I could kind of get myself psyched up for it. There's like a funny video. I think it was from my first briefing where Karina are kind of like dancing or shimmying or something right before you're just like shaking it all off. So sometimes that. But some days, you know, you're human, right? So some days I certainly let the 12th question on how crappy we were get to me. Um, But, you know, you learn that you have to maintain calm and also have to just repeat the context the 12, 15 times you answer the question. Would you breathe? Do a
0: breathing exercise? Because you are known for many things. And and part of the reason why I think people appreciated your uh, approach to that podium was you always seemed calm and in control of your faculties and your emotions, even when you were being attacked or your principal was being attacked. Was there some magic or trick to that?
1: I mean, I will say that when things get crazy, what got crazy in that room, and I did this even before I was the press secretary because I was the spokesperson at the State Department for two and a half years too, like ten years ago. So I had to practice it there. You know, if things got crazy in there, I sometimes pretend would pretend I was like an orderly in an insane asylum. (laughs) So it's like if you talk slower and more calmly, like (laughs) people will like put away their knives and stop. But how do you do that without sounding
0: condescending? Although maybe that you sometimes do want to sound condescending.
1: Although my intention was never to sound condescending, um, although, you know, the right wing like to say that. But um, I think some some of it is really trying, and I'm trying this, it, to try to do this in this job too, is like to listen to what people are actually saying in their question. And sometimes you're listening for something that you can hook into to kind of dismantle it that doesn't always work. If, if it's a crappy day and you're under fire for good reason, then it, you're under fire for good reason. And there were plenty of days like that, but sometimes, you know, my, fa- my favorite thing people used to do, which is a very Trumpian thing to do is to say, some people are saying, some people are, are <laughs> yes. saying, and it's well like, sourced. who's the, some people for, well, and it's also even the, some people, if it's a person who's walking by the white house, I really, God bless them, I don't care. It doesn't matter what they have to say. I mean, it matters, but it's not turning the course of, like, policymaking. But sometimes some it's a lie. some senators? Yeah. Right. I know, it's yeah, like, well, Sarah Huckabee
0: some- Sanders, and maybe this is, you know, because it's parochial to me and the Justice Department, just got up there and lied and said some FBI agents were complaining about Jim Comey's tenure. And, you know, yeah. Jim Comey is a complicated figure at this moment. Yeah. But she just got up there and lied. Yes. and And by the way, we know that. Because it was admitted in connection with the Mueller report, yes. you know, a year and a half, two years later.
1: Yes. So it is. And sometimes, unfortunately, and I don't think this is malintent, but for most people, it gets repeated, right? She says it. And then like a reporter says, well, some people are saying that the FBI, you know, and it's like, well, who's some people? She was saying it. Did she have proof of it? So, you know, there was a little, a bit of that, um, But I don't know. I think my tactics were just to try to remember if I got exercised, I was losing my own power and my own control of the situation, right? And so that's what I kept in mind.
0: Did you ever get a question, and you're gone from there now, so you can admit this because it's just you and me.
1: (laughs) Just us and your listeners.
0: Did you ever get a question, you're like, holy crap. Out of the blue, you hadn't thought about it, or were you always pretty much prepared for the questions you got and you answered to the best of your ability? Did you ever get thrown completely off guard? Of course. I mean – Well, why should that be? Why wouldn't your team predict every question?
1: It's impossible, you know. And um, I – you know, at the State Department, they have this actually what I think is a really great tradition, and it doesn't really flow as well at the White House, it turns out. Where at the State Department, if you don't have the information the reporter's asking for, you say, I'm going to take the question. And that means that you basically are committing to sending a written answer to the question, ideally later that day. Um, you know, the truth is it shouldn't be that the briefing room is a stump machine, right? You're, you know, it should be that it is a forum, yes, for holding administrations accountable through the press secretary, yes. But also there are times where you just you may not have information on a particular because also there were people in that room who had, well, certainly agendas for some people, but also some people who just were focused on issues that were not front and center in the daily news. Good for them, but it may not be an issue that you have had a chance to discuss with like you know, and a, a person who is like down the echelons at OMB yet, even if it's an important question. So, um, yes, there were plenty of days. I swear every day I did the briefing, I would walk off and say, I wish I would have said this better. I wish I could have conveyed this in a more clear way. Um, yeah, I didn't, I don't know if I had a briefing where I was like, that was great. <laughs> did so. you,
0: did you watch yourself and look at the tape and try to learn from what you saw?
1: I did watch interviews, I did. Um, and sometimes, if things were on Twitter and it was problematic or what have you, I would watch it. You have to, you have to. I mean, so I always tell people I don't know what you, advice you give to people who are doing TV for the first time or starting it. It's like people can tell you all the tactics and things, and most of them are wrong, like the people who tell you to sit on your hands. Like you look like crazy when you do that. So don't do that. Wait, that's it.
0: nobody ever told me that. And I don't and I don't sit on my it's hands. It's like people say, Don't
1: move your hands. And I'm like, well, you look like you're a robot if you don't move your hands. But um so I do tell people you have to watch yourself because you will find why oh, am I saying yeah. that? Why am I using my voice like that? Why am I talking loud? Why am I talking so fast?
0: Yeah. Um, I had two things that I noticed, you know, I I didn't do television until I was, you know, 41 years old. One was like in conversation, when someone's asking you a question, it's a thoughtful question. You want to think about it. At least this is my habit. And I know other people do this. You break eye contact and you kind of look off to the left or the right. You look like a crazy person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or You look like you're being evasive unintentionally. Yes.
0: And the other thing was I had to tell people would point out that if I got asked a question that was above average difficulty and there are one or more people on this uh, who are listening in on the team who noticed that, that I would blink more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I wouldn't lose my cool. I wouldn't sweat. I wouldn't perspire. I wouldn't tremble. But boy, Preet started blinking. And I had to work on that. Did you have things like that?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, my husband, who is obviously a big supporter of mine, but is also my most honest, and it's not like he's cons- he was consuming the briefings most days. Although my father-in-law... Watched and listened to every briefing, bless him. But my husband, I remember one interview I did with Chris Wallace, who asked very fair, understandable questions, but it was right around, I think it was around Saudi Arabia and the relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is a tricky wicket, let's just say, and complicated. Um, And he was asking me a series of questions, all fair. And I was talking so fast that I ended the interview— And my husband was on a text chain with my sister and brother-in-law and didn't realize I was on there. And he was like, that wasn't her best. (laughs) Just like critiquing my, um, my fast talking. I fast talk. That is my natural place. And I do that anyway. But I think sometimes when I think when I'm nervous about answering a question, I fast talk.
0: What about on days when Very serious things were happening. And I'll give the example that I think I'm guessing was one of the more difficult time periods certainly was for the administration. And that's the time period during which the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. Yes. What was that like for you? What were those days like? How did you deal with the criticism? What was it like behind the scenes, et cetera?
1: That was the most difficult time of my time in the Biden White House, for certain. The worst day of my time by far was the day— that we lost um, members of the military in Afghanistan um, at the during the attack at Abbey Gate. Um, it was difficult for a range of reasons. Obviously, when you have the footage where people are so desperate they're hanging off of a plane, that is heartbreaking and really difficult to answer what's happening here. Um, the day that we lost members of the military, I mean, I remember that day so distinctly because um, I was— there were daily morning meetings in the Situation Room, um, and which I attended. I may or may not have invited myself to, which sometimes time to time you have to do to know what's happening. Um, and I remember walking into the meeting and um, John Finer, who's the Deputy National Security Advisor, brilliant, brilliant guy— They had said to me and the team, like, we need to make sure reporters understand that there is a real threat of a terror, like terror. There's a real threat here. And I walked in and I said to him, I think we're making I think people are starting to understand. And he said, there's been an attack. And it's like, I remember that moment. And then there was the military was giving updates and stuff. And that day was just so, you know, the president in that moment, obviously, it's heartbreak. It's the worst day it's the worst thing that can happen when you're a president um and he finding a way for him to meet that moment and what he was going to say and then I was going to do a briefing after him you're thinking like how can I possibly I'm not making things better I'm not even like making the press better like this is a horrible day in our country but all you can do is try to bring people inside the room of the emotional reaction and what was happening and 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 what was happening behind the scenes. And what's also was so hard about that period of time was that you were watching, you know, people who were picking between terrible options. Right. It was not an option to keep a a presence in Afghanistan. It just was not. I mean, Trump had already negotiated a, a deal on timeline and withdrawal without any details, But, you know, the world was calling for Jake Sullivan to be fired, Tony Blinken to be fired. All of these people who maybe some decisions were imperfect, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but were working their tails off to coordinate and to pick between difficult options. That's what you kind of don't see unless you work in the White House. And seeing them just absolutely vilified publicly is very difficult.
0: On the other side of the coin, was there – a particular time period, or a particular day that was really excellent and wonderful and fun?
1: Oh, of course. What Um, was your best day? My best day, which was sort of an unexpected best day in some ways, was um, the day that Kentaji Brown Jackson came to the justice, sorry, justice, um, came to give a speech on the South Lawn. And it was, you know, that were you there?
0: I was not. But I was watching. I was watching. It
1: was... One, sometimes in the White House, you get so in your foxhole. You're like, I can't, I can't go to the event. I can't do the thing. I can't take a moment because I have so many things in my to-do list and my inbox. And I felt like that that day. And then I just decided kind of last minute that I wanted to just be there because I would regret. I knew it was like shortly before I was leaving the White House, even though that wasn't known publicly, I knew that I didn't, I didn't have that much time left there. So I went out and I sat, you know, out on the South Lawn, um, and and her speech was just remarkable and so moving and amazing. And like being a part of that, I mean, a small part of it. I wasn't a part of the confirmation team or anything, but just feeling like this is why you come work in government to like make things happen, to make change happen, to make historic things happen. And I started like crying and I'm like, Oh my God, pull pull yourself together.
0: <laughs> pull yourself your, but together. You cried but on I, your best day. That's good.
1: Yeah. You cried on your best day. You cry, you cry of happiness and pride. But then I looked around and like everybody was crying around me but that day was probably my my best day. And also the day the Olympians came, I was like, a am an Olympics freak. I just like, it was so exciting. Um, So yeah, but I had a lot of great days.
0: You're just reminding me um, of a couple of my own experiences. Because you go and do this job, and I've had a, a, amazingly privileged experiences, and I got to do these great jobs. You've got to do these great jobs in government. I remember the first time I walked into the Senate Judiciary hearing room. And I saw 19 senators who represented, you know, a couple of hundred million people and thought to myself, like, I get to be here. And then you forget that, right? Because, you know, you have yeah. work and the senator is yelling at you. You have people who are, in, in your experience, who are, you know, yelling, asking for materials and and wanting to follow up and reporters are in your face. And you can sometimes forget where you are and how special it is. And yes. I, you know, I knew I was leaving the Senate. I had some, some time before I got confirmed to be the U.S. attorney. I think I've told this story before. I went and I took Robert Caro's Master of the Senate the hardcover version of it. And I went to the floor of the Senate and sat in the staff area and just, and I read the first chapter, which is which is about the desks of the Senate, knowing I probably would never sit there again. Yeah. How often did you forget or remember that you were in the White House and at that special podium?
1: You know, I tried to remind myself, and I don't remember who said this, but probably a lot of people. If you ever are working in the White House and you walk... Out the North Gate, which is the one that's kind of in the front of the White House, and you don't feel how special it is, the place you get to be in, then you are—it's time to go. But one of my favorite places to walk up—so there's a set of steps that connects West Exec, which is this this street that's closed off from the public, between the executive office building and the West Wing— and I used to park in on West Exec when I was the White House press secretary. And you could walk in kind of under an awning that's on West Exec. But most days I tried to walk the slightly longer way where you'd walk up the steps that that kind of go up to right in front of the West Wing lobby because you walk up those steps. And as you're walking up, you see the residents, you see the White House. And it's just a reminder of the place you're in, and I did that as often as I could because it was just that reminder. Um, and you know, I tried not to forget. And even on my last days, you know, I I did try to kind of take a walk around the East Wing and the residence and places where. You just don't know where life will be, and you can't take for granted whether or not you will ever be back in some of these places and rooms and buildings again, to your point.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. How would you describe – we've talked about the job a bunch. How would you describe what you understood your mission to be?
1: You know, I think the mission of the job in general – is to be, in many ways, a go-between the press and the administration. And so you have a responsibility to the press, always to, of course, be honest and provide them the level of detail you can, but you also have a responsibility to the administration, and you become—there's a push and pull, which is, again, a healthy part of democracy. I do think that the job in the time I had it had a different, almost—I don't want to say more important— but uniquely important because of the time we were living in, still are living in, I guess, um, role, which was to play a small role in trying to kind of rebuild some trust in the institution of government and the fact that government values the role of, of the freedom of press and that part of our democracy. Now, that's not something like one person can do, one job can do, one office can do. But that's something we talked about. Like, we called it, like, Operation Rebuild Trust, which is a little hokey. But, like, we kind of reminded ourselves that that was, like, a real central part of our jobs.
0: So now you have this TV show on MSNBC on Sundays, which is doing very well. Congratulations. It's called Inside with Jen Psaki. And so my question, how would you describe your mission on the TV show?
1: So... You know, My mission, what I come to this with is, of course, a lot of experience sitting in all these different rooms I've been talking about, the Situation Room, the Oval Office, lots of campaign buses. And what I hope I can do is peel the curtain back and really ex- help people and the viewers understand what's actually happening in all those rooms. And that is something uh, I'm not the only person who can do, but I did spend a lot of time in all those places, and so I hope I can bring a unique perspective to what I also am trying to do is, you know, I came to this and said to, to you know, my many bosses here, um, Caesar Conde, Rashida Jones, and others, like one of the things I took away from working in government and for politicians for so many years is that people are often caricatured, right, for good or for bad. You know, you you can only really be one thing or two things in the public eye, and I really wanted to showcase different sides, all the sides of some of the people who are playing prominent roles in government, running for office, working on certain issues. So that's kind of another thing that I've had fun trying to do so far. And, you know, we're going to keep trying to do on the show.
0: You have said about the TV show, quote, I'm not going on television to be a mouthpiece, end quote. Yeah. But you're not pretending to be totally nonpartisan and down the middle. You're a Democrat and a progressive. And you supported Democratic candidates before. So, so what did you? So, how do you mean that statement about being a mouthpiece?
1: I mean that that I am not here to speak on behalf of the Biden administration. If you're interested in how they are, why they're making decisions, how they're making them, one, I'm not sitting in the room. I haven't been in the room for eleven months. I have a lot of contacts there, and I can talk to a little a lot of people there and convey here's what they're saying about what they're doing. That's part of it. But I also mean that I'm not going to just go out every day on television or when I'm on television and just say everything they're doing is magical and amazing because that wouldn't be honest or authentic. I'm also not going to go out every day and say he's terrible. They're, uh, you know, actually, uh, I'm neutral on these issues that I've been fighting for for many, many decades. So I think what I'm trying to convey is that what I can bring to this is kind of, Insight and perspective on like how these things actually work, what's happening on a campaign, what's happening in a White House, how Congress is, what they, how they think about stuff. But I'm not here to be the spokesperson for any candidate or campaign. And there is a difference.
0: Congratulations on the new show. Thank you. Uh, I've been a big fan for a long time. Thanks for being on. You too, mutual fan. Thank you,
1: love being on with you.
0: My conversation with Jen Psaki continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. We discuss how she thinks about impartiality in journalism. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So folks, before we end the show this week, I wanted to highlight an article published in Yes Magazine. As you may know, This past Saturday, we celebrated Earth Day, a day dedicated to increasing public awareness of environmental issues. I often think about these issues, we talk about them on the show, and so when I read the story, I thought it was worth sharing with you all. It's about a group of comedians known as the Climate Comedy Cohort. Now you're probably thinking, what does comedy have to do with climate? Climate change is no laughing matter, and that's a fair point. But this group is here to show you different. They describe themselves as, quote, an unprecedented network of comedians who are coming together to learn, collaborate, and create hilarious new comedy informed by the hottest climate science, end quote. The program includes a nine-month fellowship and comedy contest and was created by American University Center for Media and Social Impact and Generation 180, a clean energy nonprofit organization. Yes Magazine points out in the article that by talking about climate, even irreverently, they may be helping to combat climate doom and boost civic engagement. One comedian from the cohort, Katie Hannigan, joked,
1: I am doing my part for climate change, okay? I have never even used my gas stove since I started that fire.
0: (laughs) Kat Ivasco, a comedian on another show called LOL Climate Change, says, we aren't big on sharing data and statistics. What we are looking for is, how does this show up in human experience? Of course, humor can be a powerful tool when it comes to engaging with and relating to others. I've talked about this before, I've thought about it a lot, especially during my time as U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York. Difficult situations, high-stakes scenarios, sometimes require a little dose of humor. As these comedians know, humor is vital to any serious business. That includes climate change and the environment. that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jen Psaki. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters lettersatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Curlander. Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.